Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Family Church in Ohioville, Pennsylvania. We pray you are challenged in your walk with the Lord through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly Family Church or to subscribe to our free podcasts, please visit us on the web at cafamily.net. Thank God for His holy written word that reveals to us the living Christ. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about seeing ourselves healed in Jesus. Seeing ourselves healed in Jesus. For many, many years the church has really been negligent with regard to teaching redemption as it should be taught. As far as Jesus not just bearing our sin on the cross but also our sickness and our disease. And as a result the power of God to heal has really been non-existent within the church for many, many, many years. But thank God uh, that he produced and caused a revival to take place over many, many years. And that revelation has come back to the church. And so we believe that Jesus is here not just to save, but to heal, deliver, and set free. And just to be as he was always when he walked upon the earth. If you studied his life as he walked upon the earth, you'll find out he did more healings in one week than 4,000 years of Jewish history. And he said the motivation behind his healing was compassion. He was compassionate toward people and healed all that were sick. And everyone that came to him was delivered, set free, and made whole. We're talking the blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame made to walk once again. And even the maimed were made whole. Can you imagine that? A man with a withered hand was restored. And so the list goes on. Of course, he raised up Lazarus from the dead after being decayed. You talk about the power of God to, to heal a body. My goodness. So... He's the same yesterday, today, forever, and always. We want to talk about that this morning. So we're going to talk about seeing ourselves healed in Jesus. We're going to go to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. We'll read verses 4 and 5 first. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged. Why? Because of the way. Keep that in mind. Discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. You know when Jesus was here on earth, he said that we would have tribulation. Didn't he? But he also went on to say, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, and I've denied its right to have dominion over you. Okay, so it's not going to destroy you, but you will have tribulation. In other words, there's going to be challenges, spiritual challenges, emotional challenges, physical challenges, financial challenges, social challenges, relational challenges, and we can list all many, so many challenges that we face along the way. And as a result... If we don't deal with them correctly, we can become, as they were, discouraged. Do you remember when King David was at Ziklag? And while he was there at Ziklag, they came and they stole everything, all the possessions. They kidnapped their wives, their children, even his mighty men of valor that were with him. They were all taken. They were all kidnapped and taken away. And it says in Samuel, 2 Samuel, it says that they cried until they could cry no more cried out all their tears. They were dehydrated from their crying. Even David's own men wanted to kill him. So David was at the lowest place in his life. They wanted to kill him. He's by himself. And he was discouraged just like anybody else could be or would be. 
But the Bible says that when he was discouraged, he encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, think about this. He had no one else to fan the flame of encouragement in his life. And so what did he do? He encouraged himself in the Lord. Rather than hanging his head down low, and rather than going off and walking away from God or blaming God for the situation, he encouraged himself in the Lord. And after he encouraged himself, see, to become discouraged means you lose that spiritual initiative or enthusiasm. It means you walk away from your confidence in the living God, which is what these people did. But David, even though he was at the place of discouragement, what he did was he encouraged himself in the Lord and he started remembering the lion and the bear. He remembered Goliath and how he brought him down. He remembered how the hand of God was heavy upon him and enabled him to defeat the enemy time and time again. And so what he did was after he encouraged himself in the Lord, the Bible says, then he inquired of the Lord. First he encouraged himself, then he inquired of the Lord, and the Lord gave him instruction and direction as to what to do, and then he pursued the enemy and got back all their wives, their children, and all the goods that were stolen were brought back, praise God. What a difference when you see something like that happen. Rather than him wallowing in self-pity, seeing himself as a victim, overcome by the enemy, he encouraged himself in the Lord and sought his face, and God gave him direction. And he gave him faith so, so that he can rise up and over, overcome and conquer the enemy. But not these guys, not these Israelites. No, 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 no. See, they were discouraged as well. But what they did was they criticized God. They criticized him. First, the motive of God. What did they say? You brought us out here to kill us. Was that his motive? That was not his motive. Sometimes we can be blinded to the very heart of God. The motive of God was to bring them out there to keep them safe, to get them to a place that they could prosper and have abundant life. But they couldn't see that because they were blinded to that because of their natural, physical needs that weren't being met at that moment. So they accused him falsely by saying, you brought us out here to kill us. Number two, they also criticized his power and ability to provide even in a wilderness. There's no food, there's no bread, and there is no water for us to drink. Remember they said at one point, can God provide a meal or, or fill a table in a wilderness? Now you might want to doubt his willingness, but don't ever doubt his ability. He brought them quail till it came out their nostrils, the Bible says. It was waist high as far as the eye can see because they wanted quail. So can God provide a buffet in the wilderness? He sure can. But notice this third one. You see, it seems like he was tolerating the one statement, right? The motive. Tolerated the second statement, his ability to provide food. But when they criticize his cooking... It was all over. It was all over. Now, the word loathsome that's there in the Hebrew, it's a word. I looked at some different commentaries, and this one particular commentary said, this Hebrew word is a word that really incorporates within it every derogatory adjective that you can possibly know. So I took it upon myself to write them out for us so that we can see. Now, mind you, when your wife makes you a wonderful meal and asks you, how was your meal, honey? Don't say it was awful, worthless, wretched, insipid, horrible, contemptible, unsubstantial, hateful. 
revolting, detestable, abhorrent, sickening, repulsive, abominable, odious, despicable, repugnant, repellent, disgusting manna. She'll say, go to McDonald's. Get out of here. <laughs> That's what they said about God's manna. That did it. Look at verse 6. <laughs> that was it. Pushed him over the edge. So look at verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. In other words, judgment came upon them. Now, I realize sometimes people think, how can God do such a thing? How can he remove his hand of protection so that they would be attacked by these serpents and that they would die? Well, we got to go all the way back to the time of Noah. And what we realize is this, God knows when judgment is necessary. And trust me, as much as he doesn't want to do it, he has to do it. See, back then he had to do it. He had to judge mankind. Why? Because he had to preserve the righteous line, right? And then you think about Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember what uh, Abraham did when he prayed and said, Lord, will you destroy all these people? Come on. You know, you're the righteous God. He says, well, if, you can, if, you can, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the people. Well, there weren't 50. There weren't 40. There weren't 30. There weren't 20. There weren't 10. And so finally what happened? Judgment fell upon the people. Remember the time of Nineveh when Jonah was sent to Nineveh? And what did Jonah say? I don't want to go there. He took a ticket the other way from the will of God. Why? Because he said, I know you're a merciful God and you'll forgive them if they repent. Judgment was about to fall upon them, but they repented and stayed the hand of judgment. But then remember David and Bathsheba and what happened with David? And he sinned, committing adultery and then murder and then cover up. And the list goes on and on. Then he gave his the Lord's enemies, an opportunity for them to do what? An occasion to curse God, to look down upon God. And so what happened? Judgment fell upon David's life. God knows when judgment is necessary, so we can never question his mind, his thinking, his understanding, or his judgment whatsoever. This is something that had to be done. And what did it result in? Look at the next verse. What did it result in? Because of the fact that they were judged and many died, therefore the people who came to Moses and said, we have sinned, finally. Their eyes are open. We have spoken against the Lord. Whoa, we have what? Spoken against the Lord. Well, all we said, we didn't like his food. Right? No. You, you question his integrity. You question his compassion. You question his ability, his willingness. I mean, the list goes on and on. You see, they didn't really know the heart of God. So they spoke against the Lord and against the pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. So now notice it, it worked what in them? The judgment worked what in them? Confession of their sin. Repentance. Right? And then someone to intercede for them to get in tune with God so he can provide for them the direction that they needed to rise up above the situation and overcome the situation. So when we find ourselves in a difficult place, what is necessary for us to do is to see to it that we look to him for direction and instruction as to what we should do. Look at the next verse. In verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten 
when he looketh upon it shall live. So, direction is given. Why? Because faith needs direction. We've got to understand that we don't manufacture our own faith. Faith comes from the Word of God. Faith comes by following what He says to do in a given situation. And I'll be honest with you, for the most part, when God tells us to do something that prompts us to use our faith, it's usually illogical. It's usually unreasonable. It's usually contradictory to the way we would do things in the natural. I mean, just think about some of the things. You go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, and what do you discover? By faith, Noah built an ark. There was something that he did. But did he just start building an ark on his own? Or did he get that directive from God? Faith to build the ark came from God, the voice of God, the word of God was proclaimed and declared, and he heard the word. And what did he do? He builds an ark. Was it near water? It was on dry land. Who builds this humongous ark on dry land and thinks the people around you aren't going to think you've lost it somewhere along the line? But he builds this ark by faith. He built the ark. When Jesus told this Peter to cast your nets down, go out a little bit further into the deep and cast your net down, that was illogical. It was unreasonable because in the daytime, you don't fish that way. If you're going to use a net, you've got to be closer to shore. It's going to be on the bottom of the ocean, and then you're going to get your, your catch of fish. But he says, no, go out there and do something, Peter, that's unreasonable, something that's illogical. And if you'll just go ahead and disobey me and do what I, what does Peter say? <laughs> Lord, I, you know, we've toiled all night long. But you know what? It's your word. I'm going to do what you've told me to do. And so you could say by that limited degree of faith, he launches out. And what's he, he do? He throws out the net, not the nets, plural, like Jesus said, but the net. And when they finally get a, a, a catch of fish that is so humongous that the boats begin to sink, he calls for help. See, it was illogical to do, to do that. Remember the woman that couldn't pay her debt? And they were going to take her sons and, and, and basically hold them and put them into slavery to pay off the debt. And what does the prophet say? Go get as many vessels as you can find in all the neighborhood. Why? Because you got this much oil in the cruise. So I'm going to go and buy, uh, find all these particular vessels. It's illogical. What are you going to do with that little bit? You know, God could take a little bit and make a whole lot out of it. And it kept pouring and 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 pouring. And what limited the miracle was the amount of vessels that she found. Had she found more vessels and more vessels, she'd still be pouring today. Because you see, that's how God works by faith. It's illogical to us. Oh, I know. Let's get a new captain that's going to take us to the walls of Jericho. And I know exactly the strategy we're going to use. We're going to walk around the wall seven times and shout on the seventh day at the seventh time. Really, that's your military strategy. That's what you're going to do. Let me tell you something. If God said to do it, those walls are coming down. Are you seeing my point? 
We don't manufacture our own faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when we know what God says to do in our given situation, sometimes that's what the problem is. We don't take the time to do what they ask God to do or Moses to do. Get a hold of the mind of God tell him to tell us what we have to do to stop this. They wanted him to stop the serpents from biting them, etc., etc., so that they would live, to stay this judgment, in other words. We need to find out what God says to do. So what did God tell them to do? Look at the next verse. Moses made a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So the instruction was this. Get a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, and tell the people if you're bitten by a serpent, you've got to look at it. Now notice this, and I put this in your notes for a reason. It says we need to look at it attentively, expectantly, with a steady, absorbing gaze. To look at it expectantly with a steady, absorbing gaze. Attentively, expectantly. Now wait a minute. When am I supposed to look at this serpent on a pole? Before I'm bitten or after I'm bitten? Because it's an easy thing to look at it before I get bitten. Is it not? Just look at it. Think about it. It wasn't preventive. It was after you get bitten, look. What's the temptation for all of us? If we were to get bitten on the ankle, where are we looking? If we get bitten on the arm, where are we looking? You talk about a challenge. He provides the remedy. He provides the solution. But also he tells us in, with the instruction that you're going to have to make a decision as to what you're going to do. When you get bitten by the serpent's bite, whether it's, that's a spiritual attack on your life, where maybe it's guilt, it's condemnation, it's sin consciousness, etc. Those are diseases of the spirit. Or if it's in the soulless part of your life, there's where we have our emotional feelings, mind, will, intellect, and emotional feelings and all that. You know, worry, anxiety, frustration, and all that that's dominating our lives. And we get attacked by that. Or physically, as we're talking about here today, physically in our physical body, if we get attacked and we know that we can get attacked in our physical body with sickness or disease, etc., weakness, etc. Or in your finances, it's easy for us to look at the checkbook and just say, oh my goodness, you're speaking so loudly, I can hardly stand it. Mm. Right? And we've all been down that road before, haven't we? We can be attacked that way. We can be attacked socially in our marriages, with our uh, relationships with a husband and wife or with our children that sometimes could become rebellious and that sort of thing. But remember Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17 that tells us that even though they might be out there right now in the land of the enemy, they're coming back to their own borders, praise God. They're coming back to their own borders. I see them coming into the, why? Because I'm looking at the remedy. I'm looking at the solution. I'm looking at the provision of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why. So get our eyes off the problem, he is saying, and get our eyes on the solution to the problem. But the difficulty is the symptoms speak so loudly in the natural world that we live in, and the voice of our symptoms is so loud that it's distracting, and it's more difficult for us to look at the solution. But that's called a fight. Fight the good fight of what? Faith. See, faith is a fight, and he tells us what to do. Look at the solution, the serpent on the pole, attentively, expectantly, with a steady, 
absorbing gaze. How important are those words? Don't get distracted by what you're seeing in the natural world. Don't get distracted by the symptoms, by the problem, by the mountain, by the tree of bitterness. Don't get distracted by all that. Keep focusing on the solution to the problem. Attentively be attentive. Attend to my words, he said. Expectantly, we expect God to do what he said he would do in his word. With a steady absorbing. See, through meditation, we begin to absorb the life of God in us. By maintaining our focus and continuing to look at the solution to the problem. So we do that. And what does it say? Anyone that did lived and those that didn't, didn't live. So actually what he did was this. He made the provision, but it was up to the individual to by faith appropriate it. Right? That's the challenge of faith. Would you agree with me? You know, the Bible teaches uh, levels and degrees of faith. We've talked about that many, on many occasions. But remember, it, the first time the storm came, they were on the boat. And what did Jesus say to them? How is it that you have no faith? But then the second time, Peter walked out on the water. And then, of course, Jesus rescued him, put him back in the boat. And he said, Peter, wherefore didst thou doubt, O thee of little faith? That's a progression from no faith to what? Little faith. Then the Syrophoenician woman was told, woman, great is thy faith. No faith, little faith, great faith. And then there's perfect faith. Instead of Abraham, by his works, his faith was made perfect. Perfect because he saw the end result. He had this vision where he saw God raising his son Isaac from the dead. That's called perfect faith. We see the end result before we have any evidence of it in the natural world that we live in. That's why this is called a fight. It's the fight of faith. So now, how do we appropriate this in our lives? Apply it. Well, once again, look in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 13. This lifting up of the serpent on the pole is a type of Christ. And I know some people get a little bit unglued when you talk like that because they'll say, how can you compare Jesus to a serpent on the pole? Well, let's let Jesus speak for himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The fact that he was lifted up on a pole, on a tree, for all to see, speaks to us volumes about the intent and purpose of God. It tells us everyone needs to see this. Everyone needs to understand this. Everyone needs to know this. Man is incapable of being reconciled to God on his own. Man is incapable of saving himself. There's no possible way, any other way a man could be saved. He's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. He was lifted up for all to see. And on that tree, he bore our sin and also our shame. And this takes us back to the fall of man. When man fell, he sinned and separated himself from the hand of God, the life of God. He was estranged from the life of God. And we know that. It affected him in his spirit, 
his soul and his body. His spirit was separated from God and full of spiritual death. He can't be reconciled to God on his own no matter how good he is or what good works he does upon this earth. His soul begins to lose the knowledge of God over a period of time. And that's why the 23rd Psalm says, restore my soul. It needs to be restored. The body of man becomes what? Mortal or subject to death. And once again, there's nothing that you can do or I can do about the mortality that we experience in our physical bodies. It'll go back to the dust of the earth one day should Jesus tarry his coming. And we know that nothing we can do about that. So on that cross, what happened? Jesus became sin, but also he hung there in shame. He took our sin and he took our shame on that tree. He was hung there naked for all to see. Because in the beginning when Adam sinned, he was naked before God. He was ashamed before God. He hid himself and finally had to get some fig leaves to cover his body. When he said he was naked, what did God say to him? Have you partaken of the tree of which I said, don't you partake of it? So God knew what he had done. So he took our sin. He took our shame on that tree. But also he became the curse. And God made him sick for us. Look at Isaiah 53 and verse 10. He was made sick. This is the amplified version, the classic amplified version. Yet it was the will of God to bruise him. He has put him to grief and made him sick. There's a difference between the enemy making you sick and God Almighty putting on you the sickness of all. He made him to be sick when you and he make his life an offering for sin. And he has risen from the dead in time to come. He shall see his spiritual offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So on that tree, God made him to become sick for us. But then also look at uh, Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 and verse 14 and here's a couple of translations. This is the classic amplified. And then we'll have the contemporary English version. Because this is what happened on this tree. So when we talk about looking at it expectantly, attentively, with a steady absorbing gaze. This is what we're talking about. Let's look at it. For many, the servant of God became an object of horror. Many were astonished at him. His face and his whole appearance were marred more than any man's. His form beyond that of the sons of men, but just as many were astonished at him. Look at the next translation. Many were horrified at what happened to him. But everyone who saw him was even more horrified because he suffered until he no longer looked human. This is not the passion of the Christ. This is not just blood flowing down his body and it's striped with the stripes of the Roman lictor and all that. It's not just a crown of thorns upon his head. This is something that captured the attention of a Roman centurion who witnessed the crucifixion of many criminals in his day. And when he finally at this point when Jesus was made sin, sickness, disease and mental anguish for us upon the tree. He looked up and saw what he had become. He did not look human like at all. And as a result he cried out this must have been the son of God. What did he see? There was a moment that will never be 
forgotten throughout all the eternal ages, a moment when God the Father had to remove His hand completely from His Son and allow the fullness of His judgment and of His wrath fall upon His only begotten Son. And on that tree, He became sin. On that tree, He became the curse. On that tree, He became every sickness, every disease, every mental anguish that was ever was, ever is, ever will be. He became deranged mentally. And I'm telling you, it was a sight that was so horrific. It says they were in horror as they looked up at how horrific it was. And when they saw that, he must have been the Son of God. He had never seen anything like it ever before. Beloved, he did that for you. He did that for me. And you know what we're supposed to do? Look at it with a steady, absorbing gaze. And just keep on looking at it. And we may not understand it, but keep on looking at it. And keep on looking at it. Because you see, that's the solution to the human problem. As we look at what he's done for us. And let that penetrate our very souls. And fall to our knees and deeply appreciate what he's done for us. Yes, Lord, I'll tell you what, I'm receiving it. See, the Israelites, they were healed by looking at the type, the serpent on the pole. And isn't it something that in the medical field, medical profession, they've used that on the pole? And that's something. But you and I are healed not by looking at that, but looking at the Christ on the tree. Becoming the curse for you and for me. Now, how do I do this? It's done by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 tells us our light affliction, which is but for a moment. In other words, anything we face in this life compared to the backdrop of all that we're going to experience in Christ, it works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. It's nothing compared to the glory of God that will be revealed in you and me when we get our glorified bodies. You looking forward to a glorified body? You looking for, for a body that will never get sick ever again? You looking for a body that will never gain weight ever again? Any amens out there for that? While we look not, while we look not, while we look not at the things seen, at the circumstance, at the symptom, at the physical evidence, but things which are not seen. Why? Because the things seen, it's subject to change. But the thing not seen is eternal and not subject to change. So our situation can change. What are we seeing right now with these physical eyes of ours? If we keep focused on what we're seeing with our physical eyes, then those things will dominate our lives. But if we say there's something bigger than you, there's something greater than you, there's something more powerful than you, there's something more real than you, there is something, praise God, I've got on the inside of me that trumps you, I'll tell you right now, in the name of Jesus. And as we declare that, keep on looking at the solution to the problem. What happens? That which is temporal and subject to change begins to change because what is eternal is not subject to change and it will never change. As Jesus is, it will be the same today, yesterday, at today, for, and forever. And so it's by faith we look beyond what we see and we embrace something that we don't see knowing that it's a reality that brought this world into being.
Then look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Oh, I may not see it with my natural eyes, but oh, I see it by the eye of faith. I look beyond the symptoms. I look beyond the situation. I look beyond the mountain. I look beyond the circumstance, and I thank God he's greater in me than he that is in this world. My eyes are focusing on the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, the Glorious One, who is more than enough. The Al Shaddai of my life to meet my need. He's my Jehovah God, my covenant-keeping God, and he's more than enough for me hallelujah our eyes need to focus on the solution to the problem not the problem hallelujah and i know it's a challenge but look at uh proverbs 29 verse 18 because it takes vision to be able to do this and once again we go back to the life of abraham and when abraham was told to offer up his son isaac in the book of hebrews hebrews we are told by faith he offered up isaac as a sacrifice what did he do he used the statement of God that he will have children against the statement of God that says sacrifice him. And it took him a while, but he placed one statement next to the other statement, and he kept on pondering, which is what we should be doing. Kept on pondering it, meditating it, just pouring over it, mulling over it, and finally concluded, wait a minute, if God cannot lie, if he's not a man to lie, nor the son of man to repent, if he said it, he does it. If he speaks it, he makes it good. And he said that my son will have children. And he says to kill my son, I see it now. If I kill him, God, you've got to raise him from the dead. So let's go up on the mountaintop, praise God. Did you ever see the movie where they portrayed that? Hollywood, sometimes you just wonder. Who's behind all this? They showed Abraham at the bottom of the mountain, crying his eyes out, laying on the ground. Oh, I don't want to do this. Oh, I don't want to do this. That's not what the Bible teaches. Know what he said to the servants? Let's go. You guys wait here. We're going to go up and worship, and we're coming back. Why would you be crying if you know you're both coming back? And it says, he received him raised from the dead in a figure, which means he saw it. He, had, he envisioned it. He allowed himself to go beyond what he could understand, to tap into the resources of, of the spiritual realm, the spiritual life. And he says, I see it. You can't lie. You said to kill him. I will kill him and you must raise him from the dead. And that's it. I receive it done. Let's go do it. Praise God. And he went up there and gladly laid him on the altar and gladly took the knife into his hand and gladly was about to penetrate his chest and kill him with the knife until, and, but an angel stopped him and said oh God's got a provision there's a ram in the thicket he, raised, he saw him raised from the dead that's called perfect faith now notice his perfect faith was not based on anything he concocted it's what God said to do this is where the problem lies with faith You've got to be sure God said it. You've got to be sure God is in it. You've got to know it, praise God. And we see here, without a doubt, God said he made him the serpent on a pole for us. And as he was lifted up, that serpent was, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And on that pole, he must become the curse for us. He must become sin, sickness, disease, mental anguish for us on that tree. And we've got to look at that intently, expectantly. We've got to absorb truth from that until it becomes a part of us. Proverbs 29, 18. Did we read that yet? Okay, where there is no vision, 
the people perish. People perish for what reason? Lack of knowledge. And now where there is no vision, people perish. But he keeps the law. Happy is he. So in other words, we've got to have vision. We've got to look beyond what we see. And even though what we see is speaking so loudly to our lives, we've got to look beyond what we see. And we've got to paint the picture through the word of God upon the canvas of our heart. And say, you know what? I know what the natural says. I know it's impossible for, a he- for the, an iron head of an axe to swim. I know it's impossible for food to be multiplied in the natural world. It's impossible for oil to continue recreating itself. It's impossible. What's impossible with men is possible with God. And God says, I want you to see me in this. Look beyond your symptoms. Look beyond your circumstance. And start getting enthusiastic and excited about the fact that I'm on your side. If any man is going to boast, don't boast in how rich he is. Don't boast in how strong he is. Don't boast in what he can do. But boast that he knows me because they that know their God shall be strong and they will do exploits, we are told. Why do you think David could stand before Goliath and, and, and spew out what he said in faith? He says, because my God will defend me. He'll fight for me. He'll deliver you into my hand and you're going down, Goliath. As the lion was, as the bear was, you're going down. You're the giant and you're going down, praise God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were told, they were warned, don't you dare. Don't you dare defy the decree of the king. If you don't bow down and worship when you hear the sounds of music, then you're going to be thrown to a burning fire furnace. And who's the God that will deliver you out of my hand? And they said, O king, we are not even at all careful to answer you in this situation. The God we serve, he can. And the God we serve, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So it doesn't matter what you do. If you throw us in, Praise God, he'll deliver us. If you don't throw us in, he said, we're still not going in and bow. We're not going to bow down and worship your God. And he got so mad. He got so angry. He got so inflamed. He turned up the fire on the, uh, on, on the furnace. I think it was all because it was his fire coming out of his nostrils and his ears. He was so infuriated because of what they said. And threw them in the burning fire furnace. Now, is that logical to think that God can deliver you out of a burning fire furnace in the natural world that we live in? Absolutely not. But they said, we know he can, we know he will. What a statement they made. Never forget that. He can, he has the ability, and he will, means he has the willingness or the compassion to do so. It is his will. And so they came out without the smell of smoke upon them at all. It's an amazing thing when you really rehearse these things, isn't it? And Daniel, don't you pray anymore. Don't you pray anymore. No other God. Yeah, really? He opens up the door, uh, the window, and prays all the louder. That's called boldness, wouldn't you say? Because you see, he saw God being bigger than the problem. And that's what faith is all about. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us this. It's a matter of our perspective. The enemy loves nothing more than to paint a picture of defeat in our lives. You realize that? A picture of defeat. He wants us to see ourselves sick and getting sicker. He wants us to see ourselves never recovering. He wants to see ourselves without the ability or the faith to tap into the resources of God so that we can draw from the healing powers of God. He doesn't want us to see that Jesus is our healer as well as our Savior and Redeemer. So he'll use even theologians, believe it or not, to paint a picture of defeat in our lives. But you know what? Sometimes it just takes God doing... He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Remember that? He uses the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. So with all these multitudes of people that are out there and they're studying theology, 
How many of you know that God doesn't want theologians? He wants disciples. He didn't pull me out of a seminary. He pulled me out of a mill crane. Amongst all the people that were studying theology and all that, he pulls me out of a mill crane and says, go and preach my word. And I thought, why? Don't ever think you know more than God. I wouldn't have chosen me at all. Some, when I first got saved, when I first started here at the church and ministering and all that, I'll tell you what, I was just so concerned. But I finally just said, you know what, Lord? I may know nothing about pastoring a church and nothing about preaching the gospel, but you know what? I can love people. I'll just love on people and just go to love on people and love on people. And whatever you teach me, I'll teach them. I'll share with them. Then I would go to these different meetings. I'd, the pastor would stand up and just sing with this beautiful voice. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have any of those skills, any of those things at all. But I'm going to tell you something right now. I believed God. I believed God. When my daughter fell 10 feet and she was healed by the power of God, hallelujah, she could have died, but she was healed by the power of God. I believed God. And I began to see what God was looking for, people of faith. He raised up a generation under Joshua, a Joshua generation, a generation of faith that would stand against Jericho, stand against the enemy, and be of strong and good courage, praise God, because the Lord your God is with you, whithersoever you go, praise God. He was wanting people of faith to teach the people of God faith. And people were not exposed to it. People even were against it. Even in Pentecostal circles, believe it or not, didn't want to hear the teaching of the word of faith. But all of a sudden, everybody's turned around now. They're starting to see that the truth is the truth of God's word. Okay, so Satan wants to paint a picture of us being what? Victims and not victors or victorious in Christ. He wants to paint a picture of us being conquered and not more than conquerors through him that loves us. He wants to paint a picture upon the canvas of a heart that says you're overcome when you are an overcomer. And he knows your word overcomer by your faith. That's what he's trying to do. So you see, we need to do just like Jonah said. These symptoms are lying vanities. If I'm going to say what is the truth and what is the lie and a symptom stands up against the truth or let's say is, is in conflict with the truth what am I going to do say that the symptom is greater than God that the symptom is truth if God says it's green it's green if God says it's white it's white it doesn't matter what anybody else says it matters what God says and if God says by his stripes we were healed by his stripes we are healed by his stripes we've been set guess what I got aside with the truth praise God and say it and say it and say it and say it observe it and say it and say it and say it say how many times just just keep on saying it God I know it you're not trying to convince God you're trying to convince you trying to convince me this is called the fight of faith we've got to take the bull by the horns praise God we got to start saying this is what you said just like Abraham did just like Rahab the hearted did. She says she got a hold of the truth and she exalted it above anything else she faced. And uh, when those walls of Jericho came tumbling down, guess what? Only her little house stayed still. And her family was protected. 
You see what faith can do? Oh, praise God. What a wonderful thing it is. What a wonderful thing faith is. You can speak to your mountain. It will go, praise God. But we've got to believe to see the glory of God. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us. What does it tell us? Who his own self by our sins and his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sin should live to righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed. Say it with me. By whose stripes I was healed. If I was healed, then I am healed. I call myself healed in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Glory be to God. Glory be to God. Now, are you saying it's magical? Absolutely not. You might have to say it a million times before it becomes a reality. Um, but the thing is, persist and don't give up. And we can give you many testimonies of people that have done this. But let's close with this last verse, this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful verse of Scripture. Now, remember what we said about the body of Jesus? Remember how he became sin, sickness, disease, the curse, mental anguish? And it was so bad that what? He didn't even look to be like a human, right? He didn't look human-like. Think about that. Romans 8, 11. Hallelujah. Does the spirit of the one who brought Jesus back to life live in you? Wait a minute. When he brought him back to life, he appeared with a new body that was glorified, no longer looking inhuman. A beautiful, wonderful vibrant alive body we're talking about a glory the one he died in is the one he was raised in but praise god it's brand new if the holy ghost can take a body that went what jesus's body went through how much more hallelujah then the one who brought christ back to life will also make your mortal bodies alive by his spirit who lives in you hallelujah oh thank God for the Holy Ghost living in us to quicken our mortal bodies these are mortal bodies so God wants us to rise up he wants us to expectantly attentively look at the solution with a steady absorbing gaze and just once again we're not denying reality but we're exalting the reality of the solution to the problem above the reality of the lower law the natural thing the problem and one more quick come on up here one more quick quick illustration anybody believe in the law of gravity anyone who doesn't believe in the law of gravity if you don't I'm going to do an exhibition so if someone says I don't believe in the law of gravity does that mean the law of gravity doesn't exist to them does it not at all it still exists you may say you don't believe in it you don't believe in it you don't believe in it. all you want I guarantee you don't walk off a tall building saying you don't believe in the law of gravity so it, re it really exists doesn't it so we're not denying natural laws are we not at all sickness and disease is out there it's a curse we understand that because of the fall of man but I got great news for us today there's a higher law there's a higher law 
See, the law of sin and death is a real law. But the higher law is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that liberates us from the law of sin and death. And this higher law is like the law of thrust and lift. And even though the law of gravity exists because of the higher law, an airplane will rise up in defiance to the law of gravity and fly as far as it can as long as it's got fuel. But when the fuel runs out, did you hear me? You don't want to be on that plane when the fuel runs out. Why? Because the law of gravity is bringing you back down. So when we point out these laws, you understand this is a higher law. We need to learn to operate in the law. But we can go another an hour on this one. We need to operate in this law. And you know, man didn't just learn how to fly overnight or let's say come up with a, an airplane so they can fly. But they went watching a bird just observing Mm, attentively expectantly with a steady absorbing gaze I see it now what we got to do is put feathers on our arms and we can fly they tried that jumped off of a garage jumped out of trees and guess what they didn't fly it didn't work back to the drawing board they kept looking at that with a steady absorbing gaze and kept looking at that and that thing, the belly is this big and it's this and like that and the hummingbird is crazy it's out of its mind it goes like my goodness and the bumblebee forget about it I don't know how that thing flies right and finally they got the idea man can't fly but we can come up with this higher law of thrust and lift can you see it and finally Orville and Wilbur got together and said let's try this thing out it was progressive over a period of time. You first come into the walk of faith. When we first start walking by faith, guess what? You know, you're just starting out. Keep on looking. Keep on looking. Keep on looking. Keep on operating that higher law. It's a higher law. And keep on doing it. We all got to do this. It'll set us free from a law, sin, and death. Hallelujah. Let's all stand together before the Lord.